perhaps not nearly as well known as the one right before it, but I think it gives us a, a, a good picture of God and of ourselves and of the relationship between ourselves and God. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle? Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. So we start out with a picture of creation, and that's why we sang the song that we did, reflecting on God as creator of everything. And obviously in creation we see both God's power and God's possession. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Uh, we don't like the concept of slavery. And certainly it's an institution that was abused at many times throughout history. But there is a very real sense in which we are... God's possession, which he owns and has an absolute right to do whatever he pleases in and with our lives. And that's actually true of every person in the whole world, not just those who are trusting in God, but every person in the whole world. Think about Pharaoh. Pharaoh thought he was doing what he wanted, and he was to a large extent, and yet his rebellion against God and the plagues that came down upon Egypt were a testimony both to the Israelites and to the surrounding nations that the Egyptians were not in charge, God is. And so when it says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it, we belong to God. He owns us. He can direct us. Romans 9 certainly brings out that point. Uh, if you see someone making a clay pot, the clay that's being molded into a particular shape can't say I'd rather be a vase than a bowl or a cup than a plate or anything along those sorts of lines. It's up to the will of the one who is molding it to determine it. And we look at that and we then say, well, then that means I can get away with whatever I want because if I do anything, it must be because God wants me to do it. And, you know, Paul condemns that line of thinking and says that Someone who truly, truly knows God is not going to approach it that way. And even though God is the creator and all-powerful and watching over all things, that doesn't give us the right to go our own way. But when it says the earth is the Lord and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it, I think we also should reflect on the fact that God can dispense of all of the resource, resources of the world according to his plan and his purpose. Um, there's a passage that I was reading recently where it says that God, it was the passage in Ecclesiastes that we looked at recently, that God gives to the wicked the task of heaping up wealth on the behalf of those who are righteous. Let me turn there 
and just read that passage briefly. It says at the end of chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. So there's a sense in which God has created, means he owns everything, it means he can direct everything, and that he is in a totally unique place. We can't look at ourselves and ever say, God, I'm over you, and I can command you, and I can force you to give me this thing. I think that's the lesson that God reminded Job of repeatedly and emphatically at the end of the book of Job. Job, you know a lot of stuff. How about all the constellations? You can name them off, but do you know the names of all of them, not just the ones you're familiar with? Who put them there? Was it you, Job? I mean, God reminds him that God is just in a completely different... Uh, there's just not words to describe the gap, the difference between us as creatures and God as the Creator. Verse 2 is kind of interesting because it says He's founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And you look at that and you say, well, I mean, I suppose if you look back at the creation account in Genesis that we see water and then we see the dry land appear so perhaps it's a reference to creation some commentators look at that and they say hey the Canaanites worship the sea and the river and so this is an expression of triumph of God over pagan gods and I think there's certainly support of that other places in scripture um, Elijah's mocking of Baal the song of victory that Moses has toward Egypt after they're delivered out of the Red Sea, and uh, various other examples of God delivering his people from pagan nations who thought that their gods were the true God, and God said, no, they're not. They're worthless idols. And so I think there's a very real sense in which uh, it's quite possible that this is, in fact, an allusion to God's triumph over the nations who believe themselves to be following gods that they can control and that they can command and that will at the same time give them victory and achieve their own goals. And we see over and over again that that sort of thinking is frustrated and disrupted and shown to be wrong. Verse 3 sort of has a, a change. It jumps from God made everything to who may ascend into the hill of the Lord. It's almost like a copy and paste from another psalm. Turn back to, I believe it's Psalm 15. O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness, he does not... And speaks truth in his heart, he does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. And there are those who look at this particular psalm as something that would have been used in the context of a feast in Israel, they would have said, here's the God that we worship. 
And as they approached the city, there would have been this question potentially put by the priests, by the leaders of the people, saying, do you have the right to come in? You say you follow this God. What does this God require of those who follow after him? Who may ascend, who may stand. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. These are obviously, uh, they're, they're figurative of something other than themselves in the sense that he's not talking about, do you, have you washed your hands with soap? Do you have heart disease? That's not the point. We shouldn't take it that way. Instead, the point is, the actions of your hands and the thoughts, the intentions of your inner person, your heart, are they clean? Are they pure? We should pause and think about that question. If I think back over the last week, what have I done with my hands? What have I thought in my heart? Was it pure? Was it right? Did it please God? And that, of in and of itself, is a question that would, I think, cause all of us to pause and say, I don't know if I'm worthy to come in. But he doesn't stop there. He continues and says, has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. They're parallel, but I think they're emphasizing slightly different things. Has not lifted up his soul to falsehood would be more generally speaking the idea of lying and swearing deceitfully would probably be when that lie has a negative impact on someone else. Uh, think of someone who, for example, uh, when Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard, what happened? Men came and, and swore, we saw him blaspheming God, carry him out, kill him, get rid of him. Very similar parallel situation in Acts with Stephen. Have you lied this week? I say, well, I, I, I haven't had any outright lies. Have you told the circumstances of an event in a way that was not precisely a lie, but certainly left out a lot of details that would put you in a bad light? Have you thought about what it is that God says about a particular situation? There's a, there's a whole spectrum of deceit, right? And we might not come out and somebody says, hey, did you do such and such at, at this particular time? And we say, no, I was doing this instead. And we just say something that's completely and utterly false. But maybe we're, we sort of inch our way over to that through exaggeration, through uh, putting ourselves in a better light that is really justified. Just a simple example of this. Um, Something that I, I think I've noticed of people my age and a little bit younger is that we have a hesitation to commit to stuff. I think one of the factors of that is when you look at the rapid advance of technology, there's always something better just around the corner. So if I buy this tablet, this car, this whatever, what about the next thing that's going to come out next month? You certainly don't want to buy it right before major announcements of a big tech company or, you know, right before the new models are going to get rolled out with a car or any of those sorts of things because what am I going to miss out on? And so that, 
that sort of mindset leads to a rationalizing of making things up after the fact to get out of things that we don't want to do. I said I would do such and such with you, but I'm so sorry, I forgot I have to do this other thing instead. Except you didn't remember the other thing until you realized that there was something you'd rather do than the thing you had already committed to. That in itself is another form of deceit or of lying. Do we swear deceitfully? Do we say things that are untrue about people to put them in a bad light? Could we potentially do that even toward one another here in the church? Maybe somebody's supposed to do something in the church. I mean, pick something silly. Maybe somebody volunteered to wipe down the door handles and polish them with something. And that was their job. And you noticed it wasn't done this week. And so instead of talking to the person and and finding out what was going on. Maybe they forgot. Maybe they had some crisis this week, and that's the reason the job didn't get done. You go talk to somebody else in the church, and you say, hey, I can't believe that so-and-so, man, they're really falling down on the job. Is that helpful? Is that true? I mean, it's not quite the extreme of, yeah, he was blaspheming God, let's go stone him and take his stuff that happened with Naboth, but it's inching its way toward that, right? when we're willing to speak things that aren't true to harm other people. And so, the psalmist says, when the actions of your life, the thoughts and motivations of your heart, the words of your mouth, just generally and toward other people, when those things are acceptable in God's sight, what happens? He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now the blessing from the Lord part, I think, is pretty self-explanatory. God is going to honor those who follow his word and who obey him. But why would we get righteousness? If we're already doing the things God wants us to do, why would we ha receive righteousness in any sense? Because we don't really need it, right? Because we're already doing what's right. And yet there's a sense in which God rewards and strengthens his relationship with his people the more closely they follow him to a certain extent the closer he is to them and when we say close it's not i'm back here and now i'm up here because god's everywhere and it's not really even a sense that i don't have a relationship with god and now i do have a relationship with god because once you have a relationship with god you can't lose that and it's not really even a sense that God distances himself from us, but there is a sense in which sin or half-hearted devotion to God certainly creates for us at least the perception of being distant from God. And I think that that's what the psalmist is talking about. You will receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. That relationship that sanctifying work of God will be continued more specifically and more notably in his people when they are following him as they should. And there's all these tensions when I say something like that because the one who began a work in you will continue it till the day of Christ Jesus. So there's a sense in which it, it's not at all up to us. And then you come to James and James really hammers home but if you don't live for God, how can you even call yourself a Christian? And so there's all of these things that just sort of uh, 
come at us from different angles, and I think the sum total of them is supposed to just point out the fact it's certainly God that's at work in us, but we don't just sort of sit there and have it happen to us, you know? We're supposed to be seeking after God, which is what it says in verse 6. This is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face. So he starts out, and he talks more in a third person. This is the generation. And when he says generation, we might think family. And there's a sense in which that is sometimes that word sometimes used that way. Um, I think it's the same word. I didn't check this. I think this is the same word that's used back in Genesis where it talks about this is the book of the generation of Adam, of you know all of the other descendants of Adam, of, of Noah, and so forth. Um, I think probably the closest New Testament parallel is when Jesus describes the Pharisees and the other unbelieving Jews as a generation of vipers. What's the quality or the character of a specific group of people? Here, the common ground between this group of people is those who seek God. There, the common ground is those who lie and follow after Satan. There it's condemning. Here it's God praising them. This is the generation of those who seek Him. Who? Those who have clean hands, a pure heart, don't lift up their souls to falsehood, haven't sworn deceitfully, receive blessing from the Lord, righteousness from the God of salvation. People collectively who are described in those ways, these are the ones who are seeking God's face that He has this relationship with. Well, then why does he switch to Jacob? Because he's talking about Israel. In the context of Israel, this is a reminder of a couple of different things. I think it's interesting he uses the name Jacob instead of Israel, because what does Jacob mean? Liar, deceiver, cheater. Perhaps there's an element here of what Paul says in Corinthians, and such were some of you. But the very least, I think it's a call for God's people, Israel, to say, I'm not there, but I'm seeking God and I want to be there and that's what I'm striving toward. Here's the Creator in inaccessible light and glorious power and when I come to His sanctuary, I really am not qualified even to go in. But through the work that He's done in me, my hands start to be clean, my heart starts to be pure, my mouth starts to speak truth instead of lies. He continues this work in me. I can be described as someone who seeks God, and I can go in. And then you have sort of this triumphal procession at the end. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. There's a couple of different possibilities of how this is described what does this stand for? Is it a, almost a personification of the actual gates of the city? Here's the Creator. Who's worthy to approach Him? It's almost like He's there with His people and He's entering into the city. Is it addressed specifically to the gates? Is it addressed to the leaders of the people? Or a third interpretation that would parallel what I said about verse 2 would be that there's interesting parallels between the wording of this and certain chants that Canaanites would have used in praising their gods, you know, 
lift up your heads, O gods, and all these sorts of things. That may be a little bit of a stretch. I think probably the closer point of comparison, the most obvious one would be God's entered into a city with His people. Who can stand in His way? Who is He? Well, let's talk about what He's just done. He's strong and mighty. He's mighty in battle. He's given His people victory. They're returning back into the city after this feast or after this victory and lift the gates up. Let them come in because God is who He is and because of what He's done in His people, they can collectively come together into God's holy city. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the King of glory. He's the Lord strong and mighty. All of these describe God in the context of being the leader of armies, the one who gives victory in battle, all of these sorts of things. So look at this and think about what it says at the end of the book of Revelation. You see the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and earth coming down. You see God's people admitted into His presence. You see these great battles and these cataclysmic events that, that crack the foundation of the earth and yet God is victorious in all of them. Even in that, the words of this psalm could be spoken, right? God's the creator and the earth is His. Who comes before Him? Not by my own strength, but by the work that He's done in me, I can approach Him, I seek Him. God comes, nobody can bar the gate into His city. So what does this have to do with us? It's not just a, well, the world believes in evolution, we should believe in creation with the first verse. It's a, it's a, who's in charge of everything? Is it me or is it someone else? That's the question we struggle with every day. In connection with that, how am I going to live? Am I going to live as though I am God and can determine my own fate? Or am I going to live recognizing God as who He is as the Creator? And if I do, then I have the right as one who seeks His face to enter into His presence. And with regard to the last part, a God who has victory over armies because He's the commander of the hosts of heaven and of all those He has called to be His people seems like a little bit of a distant concept to us. seems like there's a lot of evil in the world and there's not much victory for good. So I think that this statement should remind us that there is hope that God has already won the battle. Think about what happened at the cross. Satan's head was crushed. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15, he says... The final enemy to be defeated is death. He sort of talks about it in a future sense there, right? It still goes on. It's, it's kind of like if you've ever killed a wasp. If you kill a wasp and then step on it, what happens? You still get stung even though it's dead. Death is like that. It still stings even though its power is broken and it's crushed. But God is victorious. And that victory is sure. And if we are those who fit into that middle part, 
we will share in that victory. And so that ought to give us hope in all the things that we go in, all of the different things of life, whether it be joy, whether it be sorrow, whether it be uh, excitement, whether it be exhaustion, whatever it is, we should remember the victory that is secure because God is who He is. And so that's really what kind of brackets this passage. God's the creator and God's the ruler. So am I the one that's going to pretend that this is not true and be conquered on this side? Or am I going to be the one that fits between those two ideas as one of God's people? That's the question we have to wrestle with. So, let's pause there and go to our time of prayer. All right. Um, uh, just a quick comment with regards to prayer requests. Uh, if any of you tell me things or mention things from previous weeks, and I'm not sure if I should put them in the prayer update, I'm going to err on the side of not putting them in the prayer update. That doesn't mean that I'm not thinking about them or praying for them or those sorts of things. It's just that I don't want to uh, make public what people might not want made public and or I may not have updates on them. So any, there's different ways of approaching it, but that's kind of the way that I'm looking at it. But just... Uh, a uh, quick one to highlight with regards to Clara. She was supposed to, I didn't talk to her with the weather, put any complications in. I believe she was supposed to get her new car yesterday. So she was very thankful that the day after we were praying for her last Wednesday, she was able to get something lined up on Thursday. So um, so I, I've got to talk to her and see where she stands with that, but that was encouraging to hear. And then I think all of you were in here when I was giving an update on Maggie. She's... Uh, Got a couple of clinic visits just to kind of monitor where things are at. I got to give her a shot tomorrow, so pray that that will go okay. Um, but it's kind of like the 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 falling action of the story for this part of the cycle, and then we start up the next one in a couple of weeks. So uh, we're thankful for how that is going so far. Mike's got back surgery on Friday, so let's certainly be in prayer for them. I was talking with Bob and Kim. It sounded like they weren't sure if they actually wanted meals. Um, we'll uh, we'll keep you updated on that and contact you if that's some way that we can encourage them. So, any other updates? Oh, one more about Mike Stanley. He uh, he asked me to put this in here. His son, Kurt, I think I spelled it the right way, has uh, prostate cancer. So he was asking prayer for that. So they're pretty sure. I mean, that's got a pretty good cure rate, but obviously there's complications and none of those things are certain. And uh, he was saying that Kurt had something else when he was a teenager, I guess, some kind of cancer that he was um, cured of. And just really pray for Mike's opportunity specifically to minister to his son now at a point when he's striving to follow God in a way that he maybe wasn't at that point in his life. So, Yes. Did you all have opportunity to talk with either of them in the last few days? Or?
Did uh, did you have a chance to talk to Amber about any of the like salvation type things? Did she? Okay. Sure. Eric, did you have any further things to add on the headmonts as far as any? Okay. Sure. Okay. Yeah. How's Sarah doing? She sore still or? We can, uh, Bobby. Is it okay if I say something about you guys and the house plans? Is that all right? Since your dad's not here, um, you guys are planning to move a week from Saturday, right? So the 23rd. Okay. And so, if any of you didn't get that update, there, uh, the seller said they'd fix the different issues that came up in the inspection, and so that's good. And so, able to move forward with things. So, along those lines, if you're able to help on the 23rd. Um, We'll uh, try to get a crew together to help with that process. Okay. Maybe we'll, uh, no, I won't comment on that. There was some, some back and forth about people making silly excuses why they didn't want to come help. So. <laughs> All right. Well, let's take the next. Yes, Ian. She's your aunt. His aunt. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I got something from, uh, see here Jim and Millie on Monday uh, Millie's sister passed away so I'll be in prayer for them um, she said that she she I know she's with the Lord so she's uh, that's an encouraging thing but a lot of uh, a lot of unsafe family I think that will 
hopefully Jim and Millie have opportunity to witness to in connection with that. I haven't heard more specific details. I've got to follow up with them again on that. So, but who? I believe down in Ohio. So, so let's take the next little while and pray together.